go ahead and begin this morning, and I'm going to read from, uh, to, to open up the worship service from Psalm number 63. This kind of get our hearts and our minds prepared for worship. This says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So imagine being in the wilderness region, in a, in a desert region. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So my question as we move into time of worship is this, do you thirst for God? Now there was the, the song that used to be really popular, As the Deer Pants for the Water, based on the scripture, the psalm. And we sing that song, we think about this, this deer in, in the forest, and but the picture is, is of panting, of thirsting, like you're about to die and you're in need of God. God is the only sustenance. So the question as we move into worship is, do you thirst for God? Have you come today with the mindset that if I don't meet with God... I have nothing. I, I, I will not be sustained in my life. He says, your steadfast love is better than life. Do you really believe God is better than life? Not, I would die for God. No, is He better than life? All of the, the temporal things of life, the comforts and the pleasures and the joys and the things that we do all the time, every day, the things that we like... Is God really, in your mind, is He better than all of that? Do you praise Him because of His steadfast love? Is that why you're here? Did you wake up this morning thinking, it is because of the steadfast love of the Lord that I'm going to go and meet with the people of God and worship my God? Or are you going to stand and sing because, well, that's just what you do at church? Are you satisfied with God? Do you meditate on God? Just God, not just what God can give you, but just God. Do you lay your head down at night in the watches of the night? And he says, and just think about God. Do you cling to God? Is God everything to you? If not, as we move into a time of singing, Christy's going to pray. While she's praying, ask God to meet with you and give you a heart that yearns for Him. Call out to Him and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and give me a heart that hungers and thirsts 
for you. If, if we've not come to meet with God and we've not come to be satisfied by God and in God, then we're wasting our time. So let's pray and let us worship our God. So if you have your Bible, please take it out and open it up to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. We're finishing out this series that we've been doing on the different roles of, of uh, the family, different positions that we play, mainly focusing on uh, men and women, males and females, uh, husbands and wives, moms and dads. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, redeemed womanhood, and then next week we'll talk about redeemed manhood, and then we'll be done. So today I have to finish out every single thing that could ever possibly said to a redeemed woman. And um, so, we'll see how it goes. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Titus 2, verses 1 through 5. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. This is God's Word. You may have a seat. Charles Bridges, late 18th, early 19th century theologian and preacher, commenting on Proverbs 31 verse 10, says this, Quote, so rare is this treasure that the challenge is given, and then he quotes the verse, who can find a virtuous woman? The ESV translation that we use says, an excellent wife, who can find? And that's my question. Where are the virtuous women? Where are the, the excellent wives? Where are the women who are going to pass the baton of virtue, the baton of godliness, the baton of purity, the baton of nobility? Where are the women who are going to pass on the baton of, of dignity onto the next generation of young girls, of young women that are being raised? Where are they? Where, where, where are we going to find them? See, our culture right now is trying to tell us that a woman is nothing more than a man who has mutilated his body and then injected it with chemicals. That's what the culture says a woman is. And I think women should be offended and, and should feel demeaned by this, but on the contrary, women all over the world are celebrating the fact that Bruce Jenner and many other people, men like him, are saying that a woman is nothing more than a mutilated man. That's what they're saying. Jesus said, 
In the beginning, He who created them made them male and female. That's what Jesus said. And He rose from the dead, so He has all authority to speak on such matters. See, God has so much higher of an expectation for male and female, for man and woman than we tend to have. And it's not just woman that we're going to look at. It's, it's, we're going to talk about redeemed women, virtuous women, excellent women, dignified women, noble women. That's what we're going to talk about today, the redeemed woman. If you still have your Bible open, you can look at Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order. Now last week as we, we, we talked about all of the different characteristics, or not all, but 11 different characteristics of the love of Christ, I finished with the characteristic that we see most often played out still today. And that is that Christ has loved His church with an equipping love. We see this happening throughout the church age. And Ephesians 4.8 says that when Christ ascended to the Father, and when He went back into heaven, He gave gifts to men. We know when, when Jesus in the Gospel of John, when He's trying to comfort His disciples, He tells them over and over, the reason that I'm leaving, the reason that it is important for me to leave is so that the Holy Spirit can come. And, and so the Holy Spirit comes and one of the, the main duties of the Holy Spirit is to give gifts to God's people. And when Paul references that in Ephesians 4... He says that these gifts were gifted men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. They were gifted to the church. Jesus gave offices of gifted men to the church to equip the church. And all of those offices that I just named are word-proclaiming offices. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. They're all offices that are centered around the, the, the dispensation of the Word of God. Putting out the Word. Getting the message out. And we read how in Ephesians 4, these men, they're given to the church by Jesus to preach and teach the Word. And when they do that, the saints, the members of the church, are equipped for ministry. The, the ministry of the church happens when the members of the church are equipped by the Word. And as the church becomes equipped to minister, the church is strengthened against false teaching and false teachers. And the church matures into a full-grown, healthy body. When, the, when each part of the body works properly, everyone's gifted differently, but when you put your gifts to, to use... The body begins to function as a properly functioning body and it grows up, Paul says, into the head, into Christ. The church functions as it was designed to function. Or if we use the, the language of earlier in Ephesians, the church operates as the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church actually becomes the complement to Christ. He is the head and then the body begins to move and the head is, is glorious. The church displays the glory of the risen Lord. So, 
I want to summarize this whole system, this order. Christ gives men to the church who teach the word. The church receives the word and is matured. The church does the ministry that they are gifted with and the church matures. And as the church matures and carries out the ministry, Christ is made glorious. Christ looks good when we function as we should. The church body grows into maturity. Now, in the book of Titus, we see this exact scenario being carried out. That's what's happening. Paul is an apostle gifted to the church. He's writing a letter to Titus, who is a shepherd, an elder of the church, gifted to the church. And he's telling Titus, here's what you need to do to put what remains into order, to, to get this church into maturity. So as an apostle of Christ, Paul's word is authoritative. When Paul writes, it's as if Jesus Christ's own hand is pinning the words. It's God's word. So he's putting forth divine mandates for Titus to employ on the island of Crete. And the end goal is that the churches on this island, when they put it into practice, the churches will be strengthened. The body will be matured and healthy and the glory of, this, of Christ will be displayed on Crete. So what does Paul tell Titus to do in this, in this order? Well, in chapter 1, he gives him the qualification for elders church has to have proper leadership and he, he warns about false teachers and what to do about false teachers. And then, in chapter 2, where we began reading, he tells Paul, teach what accords with sound doctrine. If When Titus teaches sound doctrine, this would be equipping the saints with the Word of God. Healthy teaching. And then Paul begins to detail out this sound doctrine. And when he begins to detail it out, he applies it to different groups. Now this is interesting. In verse 2, older men. Verse 3, older women. Verse 4, young women. Verse 6, younger men. And verse 9, bondservants. He gives, he addresses another family table just like in Ephesians 5 and 6. In Ephesians 5 and 6, it's wives, husbands, children, slaves. Here it's old men, young, or old men, old women, young women, young men, slaves. It's a family table. Sound doctrine has application to every stage of life. And what's interesting here is it's focused on families and households. The people as they play their role in the home. What he's saying is, Titus, when you get the homes in order, when you teach the sound doctrine and get the people in the homes functioning in their homes properly, the church is put into order. And so the goal is this. Should these groups reform their lives according to the sound doctrine they receive, the church, the body will be built up into maturity. The glory of the risen and reigning Lord will be displayed for all to see. It's not just morality. When we read these things, Paul's not saying, now just be good because that's what Christians do. Christians are supposed to be good, so just be good. No, he's saying, this is for the church. This is what makes the church function properly. This is what puts the church into order. Now the opposite outcome could be they choose to reject the doctrine. 
They, they choose to pattern their lives after the patterns of the culture, but they still profess the name of Christ. They still confess to be Christians. And the church remains immature. Those outside the church scoff at the Christ of the church. They scoff at the doctrine of the church. They scoff at the words of this Savior, the doctrine of this Savior, because what good is a Savior if He doesn't save and redeem the lives of the adherents of His teachings? What's the point of a Christian faith that doesn't make the people redeemed by that faith live any differently than the people outside of that faith? Who wants a Savior like that? The point that Paul is getting at it. And what I'm trying to do is, is lay out the motivation. Reformed lives give credence to the Word of God. And that should pierce your heart. If it doesn't, then just, just stop and just figure out why that doesn't pierce you. We'll end when he says that the Word of God may not be reviled. That should pierce us because we should think, wait a second. If I need to do something to guard the Word of God, to keep it from being reviled, I'll do whatever it takes. But oftentimes we don't care enough about the Word of God or the God of the Word to do what it takes to make sure that it's not reviled. So that's the goal, is to give credence to the Word of God, to show the world, hey, my God redeems, my Savior saves, and His Word works. His design works. But so oftentimes we can't say that because we're living just like the world. So we're going to look at what Paul teaches, tells Titus to teach the women of Crete. And we're going to see that the center point of the teaching for the women is the home, husbands, and children. And that the focus of the teaching is not what you do, it's who you are as a woman. And remember, keep, keep the context in mind the whole time. Paul is telling Titus to teach this stuff. Therefore, this is the stuff that needs to be taught. It's of utmost importance to getting the church in order. The churches are not in order, Titus. But when you teach this and they do this, the church will be in order. If the churches in Crete are going to be put in order, then the women have to do what they're taught. They have to hear the sound doctrine too. If Axis Church of Taylorsville is going to be put into order, the women of the church have to be taught and have to put into application the things that you're taught, the things that you hear. It's not like a bunch of men get together and have a church and the women just follow them around. The women are a vital, absolute necessity to the church. We have to have the women playing their biblical roles in the church. So where are the virtuous women? That's the question. Where are they? Where, how are we going to find them? So in chapter 2, verse 1, teach sound doctrine. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he just lights right into the sound doctrine. This is, this is what the sound doctrine is. And we know from Ephesians 4, the sound doctrine will produce these types of people. So in other words, here's what you will teach is what chapter or verse 2 says. Here's what they need. Here's what is good. And it's on apostolic authority. That is... The authority of Jesus. Interestingly, chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So when Titus stands up 
and reads the letter, the apostle says, he's speaking with Paul's authority, which is Jesus' authority. So he's speaking on the same authority, Jesus Christ's authority. And, and the same goes for me. When I stand here behind this thing, podium, lectern, and I say, Paul says, and I read it, it's on the authority of Jesus. So women of Axis Church, I charge you on the authority of Jesus Christ Himself, hear what the Lord says and obey. Verse 3. Older women. Now, I've been in situations where you play a game where everybody stands up, you're not allowed to talk, and you order yourselves according to age. You get in the line according to age and nobody can say anything. We're not going to do that. The truth is, no matter how old you are or how young you are, this passage of Scripture speaks. Either you are older now or you are younger now and you will be older someday. So you're either learning what you are to be and to teach or you are learning what you are to be learning and to be preparing to teach someday. So I'm not going to say, well, here's the cutoff age for older and all you young women can go outside and wait until I call you in. Now, some say that the age, the defining point for older women in biblical times was 60 years old. And this is how they figured it out. Usually, childbearing years end at 40. You raise your children, your, your final children, for around 20 years. You're done by 60. Empty nest. You're, an older, you're considered an older woman. Um, widows were not allowed to be enrolled unless they were at least 60 years old. So that's usually the cutoff age in our culture. Women might fit into these categories at, at different stages. But again, women of all ages learn from this. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. The word reverent means dignified, venerable, honorable, commanding respect. The word literally means befitting sacred things or temple worthy. If you have a King James Version, it says, Act as becometh holiness. Now this language takes our minds back to the Old Testament ceremonial system. You can read those parts of Exodus and Leviticus with all the meticulous descriptions for the furniture of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting and the bronze altar. The Ark of the Covenant, the table of the showbread, and the, the golden candlestick. Read all of the requirements for the priest to be properly suited to go in and serve in the tabernacle and into the temple. What you learn over and over is that God absolutely cares about His worship. He cares about those who come into His temple. You don't just stroll into the tabernacle and worship. In Leviticus chapter 21, verse 17, it says, Speak to Aaron, say, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. They couldn't come to offer the bread if they had a limb longer than another, a scab, or an injured foot. You're, you're out. You can't come. Fix it or stay away. 
as becometh holiness, temple worthy. God says there is a standard for those who will come into my presence. Now take that same reverence and that same respect and think about how it would apply to your behavior. Reverent in behavior. And the word behavior is actually your demeanor your, or your deportment. It's not just what you do. It's, it's everything about you. It's how you carry yourself in everything. See, you can act really reverent and dress like a prostitute. You've missed it. You can dress really nice. Skirts down to the ground. Hair down to your, down to your ankles. And act like a street woman. You've missed it. This is the total package. The command here is for older women to carry themselves in their attitude, in their attire, in their lifestyle, in their behavior as a whole, in everything, as reverent and respectable. Commanding respect. Now, the epitomizing mark of youthfulness and immaturity is a lack of seriousness and severity. Little girls, they don't, they don't understand that their clothing speaks about their attitudes and the things that they believe and, and what they see is important about what they value highly. And so a little girl, she's going to wear whatever you give her. She doesn't understand. An older woman realizes that her outward appearance says something to the world. It speaks. Whether you want it to or not, it speaks. An older woman knows that her adorning is not to be outward. An older woman doesn't try to accentuate her body at every nook and curve. Their adorning is to be inward. Little girls, in their immaturity, they haven't yet learned about the things in life that are important. And which are not. So you find a little girl. To, to, a, to a, a little girl. We could say Hannah. To her. Maybe a TV show. Meal times. Nap times. Toys. Play times. Those are the biggest things going all day. The most important thing. Sad thing is that's about the most important things for a lot of grown women. Nap times, meal times and TV shows. And toys. Mature women, older, mature women, they've grown to understand what is truly of value. Their entire life displays, I know what's important. I know what is significant. I can throw aside things that don't matter and I can focus on things that do matter. And an older, mature woman carries herself in a manner that shows that the amusement she once had are no longer affecting her mind. They're no longer held as important. Her mind and her heart are on bigger things, higher things. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10 says that women should adore themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. All of her demeanor, the older woman, woman in all of her demeanor is to be dignified. This is not just for the first lady 
This is not just for the princess or the queen of a foreign land. You look at how they act. They command respect. Or they used to. The daughters of the king of kings and the lord of lords should act as such. They should walk like it. They should talk like it. They should live and act with dignity and reverence in their behavior. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. And then he begins to give a delineation of this reverent behavior. He says, not slanderers. So, you're not to be slanderers. The word slanderers, this is, this is great. I'll learn this. This is good. The word slanderers is the word diabolos. You probably already hear the word diablo. Devil. Older women are not to be devils. Literally false accusers. It means to, to hurl insults, to throw accusations. So this is verbal assault. <clears throat> this is cutting people down. This is gossiping. This is backbiting. This is quick, snide remarks just to make sure everybody hears your opinion when, as a matter of fact, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. Verbal assault. Not slanderers. This word is used 37 times in the New Testament. 33 of them are for Satan. One is for godlessness in the last days. One is for Judas Iscariot. And two of them are a warning to women. Why? Why is it... I mean... Statistically... Why is there such a necessity for women to be warned not to be slanderers, false accusers? Well, older women have the tendency to gain a great deal of influence in a community, especially a church. Church people know how to respect their elders, usually. Church people especially know how to respect women. And so, for an older woman, their words, their opinions, their accusations are often taken very seriously. It doesn't matter the accusation or who they're accusing. Most people would just rather be on the side of agreement with an older woman than be on the opposite side. It makes silencing or refuting or rebuking an older woman, a woman terrifying. So very little is often said to an older woman and she's just... Eh. Yes, ma'am. Quite frankly, everybody is afraid of the older women. Even men, elders of the church, are terrified of the older women. And this leads to, this coupled with the tendency to be opinionated, can lead to, and has often led to, divisions in the church. In Proverbs 6, 16-19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now remember what Peter said, 1 Peter 3. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. And remember, we, we've said several times, the reason Peter has to be specific, they may be one without a word, is because the tendency is for women to try to win with a word. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 
Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 11-13 through 13, reviews to enroll younger widows for when their passion draws them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Now, why are there so many instructions, so many exhortations to women concerning their words, the use of their mouths, their lips, the things that they say? The only conclusion that we can draw, ladies is that in your fallenness, there's just a tendency to malicious, destructive behavior that you have to guard against especially. If we could say that there are specific tendencies, we could say for men, it's going to be lust. And for women, it's going to be malicious speech, false accusations, and slander. I think that would be a, a fairly... Good assumption, statistically speaking. And in this area, the words of the proverb are applicable. Proverbs 10, verse 19. Where words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. In other words, shh. Just don't talk. Better to keep your mouth closed and let somebody assume you are a fool than to open it and prove that you are a Fool, adorn yourselves with wisdom and godliness, not slander and foolish talk. Older women are not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. It was and is sort of a common thing for older women to become alcoholics. It's never only been a guy problem. As a matter of fact, women are actually more likely to develop an alcohol dependency later in life than men. And women are more likely to self-medicate with food, prescription drugs, and alcohol when life gets tough or according to life struggles and issues, when things go downhill. Now in Paul's day and Titus' day, Alcohol was used for medicinal purposes. And so it would not have been uncommon for the older women to become dependent, become slaves to much wine. And most of us have probably seen those movies that have that token older woman who has a tendency to drink too much at the dinner parties and make a fool of herself. It's because it's just a known thing that there are older women who become alcoholics. And it's actually really difficult to get a woman, an older woman who's been dependent on alcohol, to become freed from that dependency. And so Paul is telling Titus, tell those women, you had better watch out in your use of alcohol. Ladies, just because you're out of high school, just because you're out of college, and you've married, you've, or you've moved on to mature stages in life, that doesn't mean that you're just free and clear from any of the, the abuses that seem to be focused on youthfulness. So if you're going to use, be wise, be discerning. It's a fool who thinks he can carry fire close to his chest and not get burned. So be wise and use discernment, not slaves too much wine. Now, at the end of verse 3 and going into verse 4, we read, 
speaking of the older women, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Now in this transition, we see two things or one thing from two different perspectives. Number one, older women are to teach younger women. That's for the older women to hear. Younger women, you are to learn from the older women. Now we can phrase that in sort of a, a catechetical way. Question and answer. How is it that young women are to be discipled in godliness? To make it um, multiple choice. Books. Blogs. Sitcoms. Magazines. Other young women. Or older Christian women. Paul says it's older Christian women. Older Christian women are the primary God-ordained, God-given, biblically commanded teachers, trainers, and disciple-makers of the younger women. To whom is Paul writing? He's writing to Titus. What is his purpose? Set the churches in order. So if teaching and training of young women is going to happen, and it's going to happen biblically, then it's going to happen when young women stop looking at the culture, stop looking at picture pages and books and articles, and look to the older women for their discipleship. The older women of the church. From the very beginning, this is Deuteronomy 6, this is all the way back to the beginning, Discipleship and training in godliness has always taken place within the congregation, the people of God, when the elder men and elder women come alongside the younger men and the younger women and they teach them and train them. It was not done by paid professionals. It was not done by ordained clergy. It was not done by seminary degrees. It was done by the old and the wise those with years of experience who would come alongside the young ones, those with no experience and say, let me help you, you're going to wreck this. Just let me show you this. But for some reason, nowadays, in our culture, and the old are not completely at fault and the young are not completely at fault, nowadays the church thinks it's normal for someone who's professed Christ for 15, 20, 30 years to have no clue how to disciple a young person and the church thinks it's absolutely okay to hire a 23-year-old with a seminary degree to train teenagers when he was just a teenager five years ago. And how and in godliness. It is the job of the older women to train the younger women. And it is the job of the younger women to look to the older women. And an important note here, remember the context... This is not a women's ministry or a book or a class or a Bible study or a women's retreat or a slumber party. This is women of the church getting together, the people of the church, the church family, living like a family, seeing one another day to day, interacting with one another on a day to day basis and being discipled together. It's not a program. See, we're so American that we just program everything. Sure, I'll disciple somebody. What time do you want to be there? No, it's a lifestyle of discipleship. This is women 
who engage with one another regularly, spend time in one another's homes regularly, and are discipled in day-to-day life experiences. This is how life happens. This is what you can expect. Here's what you should watch out for. I've been there. You don't want to make the same mistakes I have. Older women teach what is good, and in so doing, you will train the young women. Now again, I'm not going to fuss about ages and say, well, if you're seven years old, you, be, you began, began the, the age of, of old women and, or young women, and when you turn 15, you're not a young... No, I'm not going to fuss about ages. You're either an old woman and you will learn here what you should be teaching, or you are a young woman and you will learn what you should be learning. And you are preparing for what you should be teaching later. Train the young women. Train the young women. This is not just a dispensation of information. If that was it, we could print handouts and just give them out on Sundays and say, here we've done our Titus 2 job. That's not what this word means. The word here, and I'm going to explain it because it comes up again later. The root of it is saffron. Sozo means to save and friend means mind. Saffron is to save the mind, redeem the mind. This word, sophronizo, means to cause to save the mind. Older women are to teach what is good and so cause the young women to redeem their minds. So train is actually a really good word here. If you think of it in terms of training, and this don't take this analogy too far or too literally, training and a, a wild animal for the circus. You take a wild animal out of nature and you're going to get them prepared to to jump through flaming hoops, to to sit and roll over and stand and balance a ball and its nose, whatever. What do you have to do? You have to take the, the very nature of that animal, the mind of that animal, work it, shape it, mold it so that it doesn't even think like a wild animal anymore. So much so, in fact, that if you were to turn it loose into the wild again afterwards, It wouldn't be able to function. It would die. That's the word train here. Train the mind. Older women come alongside younger women and work and train and mold and shape and cultivate the minds of the young women. Remember the differences between the older and the young. The old wise women and the young immature Girls, young girls are short-sighted. Young girls, they don't think very far in advance. They are not rehearsed in planning ahead and looking into the future because they don't know what to expect. And the older women, they did the same thing when they were, they didn't know what to expect. But older women have grown in wisdom and understanding. They've experienced it. They know the difference between useless trivialities, short-sightedness, wastes of time, They know what needs to be planned, what needs to be thought out, what needs to be prepared. And so older women are to take this learned knowledge and experience and use it to train the minds of the young girls. Teach them how to take careful thought for the future and plan ahead. How to look carefully into the future and think cautiously about circumstances. That's wisdom in action. Thinking about the future. This is training the mind. Older women... Teach what is good and so train, save the minds of the young women. And then Paul goes into the details. We might ask the question, 
how are the minds of these young women to be trained? Well, first thing he says is train the young women to love their husbands and children. Now this sounds simple, but the words again are very important. In Greek, there are different words that are used for love. There is agape love, which we've talked about a lot in the past several weeks. This love is often used to describe the love between a husband and a wife. And, all, and, and between Christ and the church and between God and His people. It is committed. It is determination. It is covenant love. A, an act of the will that leads to action accompanied by emotions. That's agape love. It's I'm loving you no matter what. I'm sticking this out. I'm here for good no matter what happens. That's agape love. The word here is a different word. It is phileo love. And you've probably heard an easy way to remember that is to remember the, the city, Philadelphia, which is called the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia, phileo. It, it's, it's often termed a, phila, a, a brotherly love. A warm, affectionate love. A fondness. Women. Older women are to train the younger women. Get this. To actually be affectionate and fond of your husband and your children. Your husband and your children are to be your best friends. Your closest companions. It should be a joy and a delight to be around your husband. And to be around your children. See, in our society, so many women get married to a man. They say, I love him. I want to spend the rest of my life with him. And three days later, oh, I just need a night with the girls. I just need a girl's night out. I just got to get with my ladies. We just got to go out and do our thing. Because they can't stand to be around a man. They're not affectionate. They're not fond of him. And the same goes for our children. Most of you have seen the movie, I think, Mom's Night Out. The whole premise of the movie is, we love children. We had a bunch of children. But I can't think of anything I want more in the world than to get away from my children. And women speak like this. If you have true affections, if you are truly fond of someone, you don't act as though your greatest desire in the world is to get away from them. When you are away, you want to be back with them. When you're separated, you want to be together. This is why so many women hire out their motherhood so that they can go work a job. It's because they want to get away for a little bit. They've had too much time with their kids. Listen, I say this all the time, they're your children if they annoy you, it's because you trained them to be annoying. You get to make them, shape them into the people you want them to be. Make them cool and they will be people you want to be around. And you don't have to talk about them like they're a curse. And you just got to get away from them. You just need some time away. And then older women come alongside the younger women and they help them see their family through this lens. Listen, going from single and dependent on mom and dad and maybe a part-time job, a little, to married or married with children and then managing a household, that's a huge leap. That's, that's big to take place sometimes overnight and then over the course of within a year. And many young wives and young mothers, they want to go back to their single lives while still having a husband and children. And God has made you a wife and a mother. You can't go back to singleness. And so the older woman comes alongside the younger woman and helps her see the blessings of God. The goodness of God. Helps them to be encouraged to labor joyfully in the Lord and to love their husbands and children. Verse 5. 
to be self-controlled. This is the same word that was used for train in verse 4. Save the mind. Older women are to train the younger women. And the younger women are to learn from the older women how to have a redeemed mind. How to have a biblically ordered mind. Don't go from one extreme to the other. Find the Christ-centered middle ground to be influenced by Christ and His Word. Again, young women, as you, as you merge into wifehood and motherhood and homemaking, you are embarking on territory you've never experienced before. You've never been there. And that weight that you saw on the shoulders of your mom and your grandmother and your great-grandmother, it's now all on you. And what tends to happen is young women think, well, I'm going to do this. I can do this just like they did it. But I'm going to keep the mindset of a single woman. And I'm going to be cool. And I'm going to be hip. And I'm going to do all of the things they did. And it can't happen. It takes a total renewal of the mind. Paul says be renewed by the, or be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If United States Marines have to have their minds and, and meet one after boot camp, if you don't believe me, have to have their minds reworked in order to do their job, then a mother, a wife and a mother and a homemaker has to have her mind renewed in order to do the job she does. Being a wife, being a mother, being a homemaker is the hardest, most selfless job on planet earth. Your mind must change. It doesn't just happen. Teach them to be pure. Older women are to teach the younger women to be pure. That is holy, set apart, free from sin, different from the world. All Christians should be aspiring to this. Sanctification is for all believers. We should all be in the pursuit of putting to death the deeds of our flesh and living sinless lives in the pursuit of this, being made into the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Redeemed women are not supposed to look like the women of the world, ever. We don't, you don't think like the women of the world. Be pure. It's simple. It's clear. It's not easy. Next one. Be working at home. The word here, working at home, oikergos, is exactly what it says. Oikos, home, ergos, to work. Working at home. This means that older women are to teach the younger women to be devoted to the duties of the home. Now this is where worldviews clash. Ladies, young and old, your number one priority in life is your home. Think about the logical train of thought again. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, under the authority of Jesus, is telling Titus what he needs to teach so that the churches will be put in order. And Paul tells Titus to teach the older women to shape the minds of the younger women, train the minds of the younger women so that they will be workers at home. It's not an opinion. It's not a good idea. It's not, hey, you, you should consider working at home. It's no Jesus says, on the authority of the Savior who came back from the dead, your primary place of labor and focus is your home. Now the onslaught of feminism in the 60s seen a mass exodus 
of women from the home and into the workplace. They left. They went to work. And now it's not called feminism anymore. It's called normal. It's called equality. It's called women's rights. It's called this is just what you do. And so if you were to ask most young girls, what do you want to be when you grow up? Very few of them are going to say, I want to be a mother. I want to be a wife. I want to be a homemaker. It's not even an option in their minds because they've never seen it. And that's not because they have something to prove. It's not because they're, they're, they're trying to stick it to the, 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 the male patriarchy, the male chauvinist. They just don't know any better. They've never seen anything any different. It's just what women do. And Jesus says, the command is that your home is to be your first place of labor. Now this brings up a serious question. Is it sinful for a woman to work a job in addition to keeping the home? Notice I did not say outside the home. I said in addition to the keeping of her home. And the answer is, maybe. When we have a question like this, we have to approach it on eggshells. What we have in this verse is a very clear command from Scripture. Very clear, no doubt about it. Be workers at home, be working at home. It's clear, there's no question. Okay? There is no command in Scripture, not even fuzzy, that tells a woman to set aside her household duties to find an extracurricular job. Now, since the home is the number one priority, then here's how we approach the question. If at any time, and this goes for anything, if at any time you lay aside an explicit command to take on an additional venture, that additional venture, whether it's good or bad, you, you name it, doesn't matter, whether it's just setting aside money to give to the temple, it's, it's Corbin money, it's devoted to God. Mark 7, look it up. It, it could be great. But if you set aside a command of God, that that you are doing becomes idolatrous and sinful. So, if your work at home is not being completed because of your extracurricular activities, and that could be a job, that could be going outside and riding a scooter up and down the street. If your work at home is not being completed, that activity, that job has become idolatrous and sinful in that situation. The labor, the work, the activity is sinful. It is sinful to work an additional job. Now we have to remember again that there are women at all different stages of life. There's single, unmarried, very few household duties, if any. There's married, no children. Some household duties, not that many. There are married with children, the most household duties. Married with a lot of children, tons of household duties. And then again, married, kids gone, some household duties, not that many. These come into play. These stages come into play regarding the question as to whether or not you should seek additional ventures, more undertakings. Should you take on more? Now, some of the problems with extracurricular activities. These are the things that could happen. Again, household duties could falter. Care for the home, child raising, things like that come to the wayside so that I can pursue this extra thing. Read Proverbs 31. A whole chapter almost devoted to all of the different things a godly woman can do. This does not mean you just sit at home waiting for you know, a dust particle to fall. No, there's a lot of things that a woman does. But if those things begin to falter because you're doing something else, that's a problem. Now some women say, ah, caring for the home and raising children, that's not a full-time job. I'll let you take that up with the women who do it in the parking lot after the service. 
Or I'll just come over to your house after the service and see how well you're actually doing that not full-time job. Or I can just watch how your children behave and see how well you're doing this not full-time job. See, the problem is it might not be a full-time job for you because you're not doing it properly. Another problem. You're living a life that is separate from your husband rather than following and helping him. You get up in the morning, you go two separate directions, you do two separate things. You don't have a unified goal. Another problem. Submission to someone else other than your husband. Paul says husbands or wives submit to your own husbands. Not to that guy down there at the factory. Now there are other submissions, the elders of the church, governing authorities, but there's no command in Scripture that tells a woman to submit to another man or woman besides her husband. And what happens is those two submissions come into competition. All of a sudden my boss needs me somewhere and my husband needs me somewhere. Then who, who says what I'm going to do? Well, my husband doesn't pay me, so he's just going to have to wait. So these are problems. You've got to think about these things. Questions that we are to ask before taking extracurricular activities or careers, jobs, whatever. Again, it's not just a job. It could be anything. Why are you working? Is it of necessity? Is it simply to avoid or afford extra stuff? Again, that's idolatry. And again, when money comes into play, boy, people get really defensive of idols. Don't you take my money from me. Don't you take my stuff. Well, God wrote it, not me. Uh, another question, am I playing my husband's role in the curse? God told Adam, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. And He told the woman, the pain of childbearing is yours. Now why should the woman bear the weight of the curse of the man when the man cannot physically bear the weight of the curse of the woman? Are you bearing the curse of the man? Another question, what does my working have to do with my husband's vision for our family? These are questions we have to ask. If we want a biblical worldview, we have to ask these things. We, you may go through all this, ask all these things and say it is legitimate, it is good. Now what typically happen, happens, and I tried to allude to this several weeks ago, what typically happens is a man and a woman meet. They've both got jobs, they, they think, hey... Motivated by finances, if we get married, two incomes is better than one. They get married, they set up their whole lives, everything based on two incomes. Now the woman is trapped working a job. Trapped providing for the man, taking part in his part of the curse because neither of them thought ahead or read to see what God might have to say on the subject. We have to be biblically informed. Again, being a wife... Being a mother, being a homemaker is the hardest, most selfless job in the world. It's not for the faint of heart. God has not called His daughters to flounder about in this world like every other woman. He's called them to so much more. The question is, do we really believe God's plan works or do we like our stuff more? Because let's just be honest, it comes down to money almost every time. Be kind. This is... Way more than being nice. We read this and we say, oh, we should be nice. We know that. No, this means fulfill the purpose for which you were designed. So many women hurry about their lives back and forth, day to day, every day. And the only thing they have to show for it is a paycheck coupled with their husband's paycheck so they can pay their bills and buy toys. God wants redeemed families 
to fulfill an eternally significant purpose. He wants marriages that display the gospel. He wants homes that echo with his praises every day. He wants sons and daughters raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord so that they can get, then be raised and send out, beget another generation of godly sons and daughters. And this happens when godly older women train godly young women to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. The design has never changed. Submissive to your own husbands. We covered this several weeks ago. I won't go into too much detail. Submissive, same word as in Ephesians, supatasso. Subject yourselves, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And you will see this modeled by the older women of the church. You will see it played out before your very eyes. You will see the benefits of God-honoring, Christ-exalting, Holy Spirit-filled marriage in the church. And here's why Paul wants Titus to teach these things and why it needs to be carried out. That the Word of God may not be reviled. Remember, it all begins with Jesus giving these offices to the church. If Paul's instructions are followed, and then the older women instruct the younger women, and they put these things in order, and the church gets to put in order the very Word of God that has gone forth shows and displays the equipping love of Christ and Christ stands as justified as the head of His church. The doctrine of God and the doctrine of His church rises as supremely wise and glorious. God is magnified. His wisdom is lifted up and the wisdom of the world looks foolish. But, imagine the situation where Paul teaches this, Titus teaches this, the older women say, no, I don't, that just doesn't really work for me. And the younger women say, well, no, I mean, nobody's teaching me, so I'm just going to learn it from somewhere else. We're just going to look at the culture, all the while the pagan culture saying, you know, there's these, this group of people, they're called the way, they claim to follow a Jewish rabbi who died and rose from the dead, and they claim that his spirit lives within them, but they really just, there's nothing different about them, they just get up on Sunday and sing, You'd end up with nothing more than a bunch of worldly families mimicking the culture while claiming Jesus died and rose from the dead. Again, the culture, laugh them to scorn. The teachings of Jesus, the doctrines of Scripture, mocked, ridiculed, the Holy Spirit becomes a laughing stock. Okay, sure, we'll take Him. We'll put Him on the shelf with our pantheon of other false gods that are completely useless. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you lay down your life for a Christianity that doesn't do anything to change the lives of the adherents of that faith. What's the point of sound doctrine if nobody's going to obey? What's the point of a redeemer if he doesn't redeem your life? What's the point of preaching if nobody's going to listen and apply it? What's the point of hearing if you're not going to listen? The Word of God is reviled every Sunday when we come in and hear the Word of God preached, but we don't apply it and we go out living just like the world. I'll end with this. I'm sorry, I've been long. Ladies, if you are redeemed, if you are a redeemed woman of God, you have been born again. Your righteousness is not found in your ability to cook, your ability to clean, your ability to bear children, your ability to keep a house, submit to a husband, none of that. It is found only only in the perfect 
spotless Lamb of God who hung on a cross for your sins in your place. That's your righteousness. It's sealed. It's done if you've been born again. You're like Queen Esther. You have nothing to fear. You walk into the throne of God completely justified and you have nothing to fear. Because of what Jesus has done in your place. Now, do you not desire that the glory of that King be made known among the whole earth? Do you not seek to please that King with your life? Do you not seek to now live for His honor in everything knowing what He's done? It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's His goodness. It's not threatenings and saying, well, you've got to do this and you have to do this and you have this. No, it's... Now that you have been redeemed, live as a redeemed woman. If you've been redeemed, you've been set free to live as a daughter of the king, not continue as a slave of a pagan culture who says this is what's expected of women. You must do this for equality. You must do this to be accepted. That's not what we live for. So ladies, don't sink to the bottom Rise to the top and live as redeemed women of God. And I'll close the way I started. Where are the virtuous women? Where, where are we going to find them? Let's pray.